I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Um, that younger people from, 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 from Africa, from Asia, would rather do business with China because the United States is now seen as frightening, as unreliable. <laughs> Welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, acting editor of CapEx. Our guest this week is the world-renowned historian and journalist Anne Applebaum. Anne is a regular columnist in the Washington Post, a visiting professor at the London School of Economics, and the author of a number of critically acclaimed books on the Soviet era, including Gulag, A History, which won a Pulitzer Prize in 2004. I started by asking her what impact the Trump presidency had had on the United States and whether it would last beyond his time in office. That's a that's a hard question to answer because it has so many um, there's so many different ways in which America's standing has shifted depending on what part of the world you're in. Um, I can I can start by saying I was last week at a meeting where there were a lot of people, um, quite prominent people from all over the world, but particularly from India, um, sort of South Asia, Africa, um, uh, the developing world. And I was on a panel with a woman who was a very quite well-known kind of democracy activist in Nigeria, and the topic was China, and 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 the investment. We started talking about the investment that China is making in Africa, and she said something which um, is really quite shocking, which is that she said, "I would rather have China investing in my country than the United States. You know, China is more reliable." Um, I don't think they'll be, um, you know, they'll be demanding some kind of special political favors in exchange for investment. They're just interested in building things, um, and I'd rather have them than the, than the Americans. I mean, this, if you take a step back, um, is quite shocking that the a democracy activist, I'm not, you know, n- not a not a corrupt businessman, you know, um, that younger people from 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 Africa, from Asia, would rather do business with China because the United States is now seen as frightening, as unreliable. Um, John Bolton gave a speech um, some days ago where he talked about how we need to be using aid instrumentally, and we only give aid to our friends and people who are helping us in particular ways. And so, you know, this put off a lot of people in ways that we don't usually spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, you know, the, the, the view of Trump in Europe um, is so dismal as, you know, as, as to be at the point where um, people, you know, European leaders would rather not meet with him because everybody knows that if you meet with him, he might say something compromising and you might have to be in an embarrassing photograph or there will be an embarrassing press conference. 
Um, so, you know, it's, it's really a, a strange moment for the United States. Um, you know, I think that the, the, the damage that he's done to America's reputation in all kinds of ways is, is pretty... Um, is pretty long-standing. I mean, but you asked the question the right way, which is, is this forever, or is it just to do with Trump, and and will it change? I mean, I think to some extent it is just to do with Trump, and it would be possible, at least at a superficial level, for um, for uh, you know another kind of American president, whether a Democrat or Republican, to change some of that simply by behaving normally, by not lying, by by keeping his word or her word, by you know by um, by um, you know, by, by not changing policy every few minutes, by not tweeting. I mean, all kinds of just, just that kind of behavior would change it. But there is something that I think pr- the British and Europeans in particular should be wary of, and that is the fact that Trump does have a constituency, and he has a constituency precisely for his anti-foreigner, isolationist language. And there's always been a part of the American political spectrum that, you know, the isolationists were big, actually were the majority before the Second World War, and there's always been a part of, you know, big chunk of American politics that doesn't like America's involvements abroad, that wants the United States to withdraw, that believes in America first. Um, and Trump represents them, and he has probably enlarged their number while being president. Um, and that constituency is now going to have a big voice in U.S. politics, probably for the near future, you know, for the rest of our lives. So um, just to finish, he, he, you know, yes, I think um, the views will be different when he's gone, but this strain in American politics can't be ignored. And I think Europeans in particular, America's closest allies, should be very, very careful of assuming that it will go away. Do you think there's a sense, I mean, you've lived outside the United States for a lot, a, a lot of your um, life, but, but Europeans don't, they don't get Trump and they don't actually really understand American culture in a lot of respects. Oh, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I think... You know, we everybody who lives outside the United States see. You know, we half lives in American culture. I mean, the American movies and American music, um, and even American fiction. You know, that's what a lot of Europeans see and listen to and read. So I'm not sure that that's um, that he's so far away. It's just that he. Um, well, that part of American. Culture, it's true perhaps. that that. No, it's true that that part of American culture um, isn't. You know, isn't. You know, it's probably probably isn't as well known. But I don't think people are. It's not that people are, they don't know it. It's that they're surprised that that level of vulgarity and that level of crudity is occupying the White House. I mean, it's not that they didn't know it existed. Mm. It's just that the idea that he's the president is, is, is what's hard for people to explain. It's not that they don't understand the United States. It's just that this is a, this is a vision of the United States they didn't think was possible. I mean, uh, returning to, we talked a bit about the, the foreign aspect of America's reputation. I mean, what do you think about the way Trump has really gone after the institutions of the American government, particularly the judiciary? Do you think that will be, that there will be lasting damage there? Or again, is it just one presidential cycle away from... The judiciary is complicated because he actually hasn't, in terms of, um, he, he is not responsible for damaging the Constitution. In term, you know, he's just appointing the judges who he's allowed to appoint. And that, in that sense, he's no different from any president. Um, more damaging, actually, is the Republican Party in Congress, particularly the Senate's behavior, and its, in particular its refusal to appoint a Supreme Court justice in the last year that Obama was president. That, you could argue, was breaking the Constitution or certainly stretching it beyond anything normal. Um, and so and, you know, that shows the lengths to which the Republican Party is willing to go to, to unconstitutionally win arguments. And so I think the... 
you know, that the, the sort of constitutional threats aren't just, you know, I, I suppose Trump's language, you know, his denunciation of civil servants, his attacks on the FBI, the CIA, um, you know, the, the bureaucracy that, you know, the, you know, some of that has a long-term damage and that it undermines trust and confidence in the U.S. government. Um, but actually the real constitutional damage, I think, has been done by the Republican Congressional Party. And that's not going to go away when Trump ceases to be. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. President. Mm. And I'm looking ahead to... We're sort of already, it seems remarkable, we're already in the 2020 presidential cycle. Um... We have, I think, more than 20 Democratic candidates, so I'm not going to ask you to pick one. But what do you think is the message that can beat Trump in years Oh, time? I think there are a lot of messages that can beat Trump, actually. Um, you know, the, the, there are a lot of messages to do with, you know, bringing the argument back to things that people really care about, one of which is health care, um, a lot of which is, you know, job insecurity, economic insecurity, um, uh, you know, um, bringing, you know, f- addressing things that people that interest people in their everyday lives and not just things that are theoretical, like the invasion of our country from migrants um, or even 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 the threat from China, which is actually which is something that Trump actually has. There's a lot of consensus in Washington, for better, or for worse, that that's you know, that that's a that's a good policy or anyway, some aspects of it are good. I'm not sure that most Americans really care about that. Um, and I think bringing, bringing home the argument, you know, to, to, to speak about things that are more immediate to people's lives is, could win. Um, I also think there is a, um, you know, there is a form of patriotism that you could refer to, you know, um, that is different from the nationalism that Trump voices. You know, you could talk about liberal patriotism, pride in our institutions, pride in our country, pride in the, all the good things it done, it's done, um, and 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 use that as a counterpoint to Trump's very negative description of America as a catastrophe and a disaster and so on. Um, I, th- I think, um, I think um, you know, I think there are a lot of winning messages, and the, the, the difficulty will be 
using them, finding them, but also packaging them within a person who can can evoke trust, uh, you know, among a wide body of Americans. I mean, just touching on what you said about his negative message, is it for him? Is there now a conundrum as to what he goes for? Because his previous message was that everything is is terrible. Mm. You know, I'm the man to fix it. Well, now that he's been president for a few years, is, he's yes, it makes that message that more and, difficult. Yes. Yeah. No, no, he has, he has to come up with a new message. And I, you know, we saw, we had a, probably a taste of it during the midterms when he focused all of his attention on what was at that time actually an imaginary migrant um, caravan. You know, he, you know he, he focused, he looks for outside threats and he talks about those um, as a way of scaring people and using fear to motivate people. Um, you know, that, and in a way that should be, I mean, if not easy, but there is an obvious way to undermine that, which is to focus on hope and things that people feel positive and happy about and re-evoking um, pride in the country for its achievements and for its diversity and for, and for all the things that hold it together. Um, I think, I think somebody, somebody could certainly do that. And, I mean, there's a lot of debate in, in the U.S. now about, uh, and, in, and in the U.K. as well, about sort of use of language, things like this. For example, you had... Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez referring to concentration camps on the Mexican border. Given that your work in the past has, has touched on some of the most horrifying periods in history, do you occasionally look at today's climate and think, actually, you know, there are bad things, but they're not as bad as... So this, is, this will sound um, perhaps surprising, but actually, technically, she's right that concentration camps is a word that was invented long before the Nazis used it. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, actually comes... I happen to have written about this. It's even before the Boer War. Yes, the word actually comes from the Cuban Civil War. And the, all it meant was, you know, camps where you keep people, whether they're partisans or, you know, who are not neither criminals nor prisoners of war, where you keep kind of family members or... In, so, so technically, actually, she's not misusing the word. Um, but I, but I, um, I, I take your point. There have been worse moments in history. I mean, the, the oddity about the current moment is that we do have a lot of language that kind of echoes or is reminiscent of both Nazi and Soviet times. And this enemies of the people is a, is a Stalinist phrase. Um, Trump has used it about journalists. Um, you know, actually, the Daily Mail used it about British judges. You know, this kind of these kind of Nazi Soviet era slogans are around, and and some of the um, you know, and some of the attitudes, some of the way you know the ways in which we have political leaders who now seek to divide and polarize people, you know, cr- you know, create antagonism inside society, one group against the next group. I mean, that's not just, by the way, not just the U.S. and the U.K. You see that in Poland, you see that in other places as well. So, and that's all kind of reminiscent of. Of the of the 1930s, you know, what we don't have is this is violence, um, which of course makes it profoundly different. I mean, there isn't there aren't um, black shirts or or violent thugs on the street, um, and the the violence such as it is is sort of verbal violence on social media, and there's sort of social media gang wars, you know, but it obviously it's not the same thing. Um, so so there is some um, there are some echoes in the present, but. Um, you know, but you know, but but it's all going to take different forms this time. So I'm always wary of drawing exact parallels. Um, it's interesting to study the past, and it's important to study the past because then, because some of the um, some of the language, some of the tactics that we're seeing now are are familiar from the past, and it's important to understand how those things ended. 
and and to work against them. But um, it's also important to understand that the present, you know, things are going to play out very differently in the in the two thousands. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned uh, Poland there, and obviously it's a country very close to your heart. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I live how, there part of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so understatement on my part there. Um, I mean, how worried are Poles at the moment about? both their own internal political strife and also external threats to the East? So it depends which Poles. Um, but Poland is very, very profoundly divided into really warring camps. Um, you know, people who re- not only you know, do they disagree with one another, actually read different media, they don't agree on the facts of the day, they, don't, they, they see the world in very different ways. So, so that's the... Uh, and that's, you know, by the way, not not that different from the United States, you know, where you have Fox News watchers and CNN watchers. You have a little bit similar thing. Um, and the, you know, at least half the country is extremely worried by the government, by its attacks on the Polish constitution, the Polish, this is something that's actually quite real, is the Polish government's attack on its judiciary, by the potential for future attacks on free media. There's already talk of so-called repolinization of the media, which would be nationalization, in fact, mm. um, and, and on, 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 on private business more generally. Um, and so, yes, there is a lot of, well, a lot of concern. Um, uh, you know, and then there's a part of the country that is happy because it, is, you know, it, is, it feels that it's benefiting from the government's um, social programs. I don't know the degree to which it's known, but the Polish government is um, nationalist in its language, but quite profoundly socialist in its economic policies, and has done, gone this enormous redistribution of, of sort of huge new. Poland was one of the had one of the lowest rates of social welfare in the EU. It's now, I think, the second highest. Um, so it's gone. There's been this enormous kind of multiplication of benefits being distributed. Um, as a way of, really, it's a way for the ruling party to stay in power. Uh, this is not unfamiliar from Venezuela or Argentina. Um, so, you know, part of the country, for the moment, is pleased with it, at least until until the money runs out. Okay. And, uh, we, I mean, we talk sometimes about the build-up of NATO troops on, in Eastern Europe and the threat from Russia. I mean, how real do you think Putin's, Russia's military threat is to countries such as Poland, I mean, Ukraine, obviously, but Poland and the Baltic states, I'm thinking. Yes, you asked me about Russia, sorry. Um, I have to be careful how I say this because everything can change very rapidly in Russia. I mean, I am not afraid right now of an imminent Russian military invasion of a European NATO country because I think um, right now the Russians think they can win, meaning they can achieve their goals, their goals being to break up the EU and to break up NATO. Um, they think they can achieve their goals without invading anybody. Um, and they are seeking to do this by promoting anti-European and anti-NATO political parties in Europe, um, by using social media disinformation campaigns, um, by using corruption to, to, to bend and shape um, uh, you know, the, the, the behavior of certain countries. So, so, so at this exact second, I'm not afraid of it. I mean, and although, by the way, I should say that one of the reasons I'm not afraid of it is that there has been in the last several years a buildup of U.S., U.K., and actually broader European um, military presence in the Baltic states and in Poland, which I think has been really important and useful in demonstrating to the Russians that NATO expansion is real. In other words, we ha- really have troops there and we care about it. Um, so one of the reasons I'm not worried about the military is that I think 
the deterrent effect of British troops in Lithuania and American troops in Poland is real and, and, and is working. But I think the Russians also have a, they have a different strategy right now. Do you think that the Russian threat is overplayed by people who still uh, think of Russia and the USSR as somehow synonymous? No, you know, I, it's funny. I mean, remember that we were so happy that the Soviet Union collapsed that we basically dis- almost dismantled NATO. I mean, there were, there were no U.S. tanks in Europe, um, you know, in the, in, the, in the early 2000s. Um, you know, we took out all kinds of troops, and we, and we really, really dialed down um, our, all of our militaries, actually. Um, and, and, the, and the current buildup and the current return to, to, a, to a different posture, I think, is, is based on, you know, real threats. I mean, we have Russian planes that, you know, that seek to, you know, buzz the Swedish coast and enter British airspace. And we have, obviously, we have the invasions of Ukraine and Georgia, you know, which is proof that the Russians are willing to use their military. Mm-hmm. Um, we have all kinds of Russian threats made at all kinds of different levels. Um, you know, uh, you know the, certainly the spies know all about these things. Um, you know, there are cyber threats. There are information war threats. Um, and I think, the, 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 I think it is not illegitimate for us to respond to these things, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a muscular way. I mean, the, it is a really odd moment because right now we don't think we're at war with Russia or even particularly in conflict with Russia. I mean, Russia barely figures, you know, in, in our daily lives or in is anything we care. But the Russians do think they're in conflict with us, you know. And so we don't really have a choice. You know, they are in conflict with us. They have a policy. They are seeking to undermine us. They are seeking to undermine our democracies. You know, it sounds like a, it might sound like science fiction to you, but it is real. I mean, this is actually their foreign policy. And so we have an obligation, you know, at least at some level to take it seriously. I mean, to what extent, sort of picking up on what you're saying there, I mean, these sorts of things like buzzing um, the Swedish coast and, you know, submarines going into the waters and things like that is, do you think there's any extent to which that's a deliberate attempt to provoke Western nations to kind of shore up Putin's message to his own public that outsiders are against Russia? Oh, I think it's all of this is about Putin and his place in Russia. I mean, I, I don't think that the Russian people have any great quarrel with the British people. I mean, I know this is all about the Putin regime's interest in staying in power. Um, and one of the things it needs to do in order to stay in power is to prove constantly to the Russians that there's no alternative and that the West offers no alternative. Western democracies are corrupt. Um, you know, that Western society is degenerate. This is what you see on Russian television all the time now. Um, and what they also would like to show is that Western institutions are meaningless. You know, this NATO thing is all rubbish and, you know, it doesn't really work. And so almost entire, almost everything they do, once you understand that that's their goal, almost everything they do then makes sense. Um, I think the, the provocations, to the, particularly in Scandinavia and the Baltic states, are also partly designed to scare people here into thinking, you know, because if they, you know, if they can show, oh, look, NATO doesn't react you know, then they make people afraid. And so then they make people begin to want to, you know, they say, well, look, there's, NATO's not real. Maybe we need to do a deal with Russia. Maybe we should, you know, if NATO's not really going to protect us, then, I mean, they're, they're trying to invoke um, fear, particularly in the East European countries, as a way of prying them out of the Western alliance. And looking at Putin and his, his clique, many of whom have been around him for a very long time, um, what do you think motivates them? Is it ideology? You often see Putin portrayed as this kind of 
post-Cold Warrior, if you like? Or is it, when you delve into it, it often just looks like a bit of a racket? Oh, I think racket is a much better way to understand it. You know, sort of, you know, mafia. Mm. It's really a mafia state. And I think it's mostly about power. I mean, Putin has used different ideologies at different times. I mean, different kinds of... Sometimes it's Russian nationalism. Sometimes it's, you know, anti-Westernism. Sometimes it's... You know, he's used, he's, sometimes he uses almost left-wing language about, you know, Western imperialism. So, you know, they'll use whatever language they think is worthwhile. And, and by the way, the way their political program in Europe works, they'll support really anybody who agrees with them, whether it's the far left or the far right, you know, or, or anybody who's disruptive, anybody who undermines the system, you know, they'll, they'll get behind them. So they're not sort of picky um, in, terms of, in terms of which... Um, which side they're on. Okay. And just looking finally in this sort of Eastern European area, uh, what do you make of Zelensky's rise in the Ukraine? And do you think he has it in him to face off against Putin or is inclined to? So I watched several episodes of Zelensky's television program. Yes. This is what we're talking yeah. about, of course, the new president of Ukraine who was a TV comedian. Um, and and the, here's the interesting thing about it. The values of the program, in other words, he plays this character. He's a history teacher who gets angry at the system and is recorded kind of swearing, he's ranting about corruption, and then he's elected, accidentally elected president. And it's the whole program is all about ordinary Ukrainians fighting the elites. You know, it's kind of, but not even, it's actually gentler and funnier than that, you know, and sort of, how ordinary people should stand up for themselves and how our system is too rigid. So actually, the, the values that he expressed in that program, if they're his real values, which, of course, we have no idea, are quite attractive and quite Western. In other words, it's a, it's a, it's a cry for the little man to be heard in, a, you know, in an oligarchic system and more power to be given to ordinary people. Um, and he's been pretty clear, actually, since his election that he wants Ukraine to be you know, aligned somehow with the West. I mean, it's... I don't know what, what specific arrangements um, are, are possible, but you know, and that he that he you know that he sees himself as a leader of a Western country, um, and I think that um, and that actually I think is because that's now the majority view in Ukraine, um, you know, very much the majority view. Um, I think there's some reason to hope that it will stick. Um, you know, I think he does not want to he does not use angry rhetoric about Russia, which his predecessor did. Um, you know, and he's talked about finding some solution for the conflict. I mean, I, it has to be said, I don't know what, what exactly that will be. Um, uh, you know, but I, but, I, but I don't think we're dealing with someone who's going to either sell out Ukraine, you know, um, or deliberately seek to start another war. I mean, I think he's, I think he's a, he'll, he'll, he'll look for some kind of middle line. I mean, given what's preceded him there, it's, it's hard to see how he could do a worse job than the Ukrainian political classes. Yeah, I mean, I think I sort of... I think Poroshenko was underrated in some ways. I mean, he there were things that changed in Ukraine, and Ukraine was moving in a positive direction. And there were, you know, I don't, I don't think it's been an entirely negative um, period since 2014. Okay. And my final uh, couple of questions, just about the work you're doing on on fake news. Um, do you think this is something that we in, say, the UK or the US are starting to get a grip on, or to at least, you know, understand the dimensions of? Or is it still early days? So I think analytically there are people around now who have invested a lot in, in understanding disinformation and why it's happening and why it works. Um, 
you know, the, but the bigger question is, are we ready to regulate it? Are we ready to take control of it and start thinking about what a democratic public space looks like um, in, the, in a world where most people get their information from the Internet? Um, and I have to say, although there was a very, there's, a, there's some very um, high-level, um, quite narrow, interesting debates here. There was a white paper on this subject um, Funnily enough, the, the the labor MP Tom Watson gave a very good speech on digital policies. And it's, I think it's been the subject has been crowded out by Brexit because that takes all the air out of political conversation and doesn't leave much room for anything else. Um, and so I don't have a huge amount of hope of something revolutionary happening here. In the United States, you have a different problem, which is that because the social media companies are big American, really influential companies, there's a kind of reluctance to touch them or harm them. I mean. At least right now, that could change if there was a different president, maybe. Um, and the one institution that might regulate them, and and you know, I'd, for better or for worse, may well be the European Union, um, because the, because the European Union both you know doesn't consider them. Obviously, they're not European companies; they're foreign companies. Um, and because the European Union is a, I mean, if it is nothing else, it is a regulatory superpower. Um, and so, regulation is what it does. And so the debate about it might become, I mean, I know there's a debate in France, there's one in Germany, and also at the EU level. So it may be that um, the most interesting things happen there first. But, but that's just a guess. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.